Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 107, Bandit Days. Which, I say Bandit Days as if they're unique to a certain period of Stalin's life. That title might understate things a little bit. Stalin was always a bandit to one extent or another. But the opportunities presented by a buckling autocracy in 1905 allowed for his criminal activities to become more than the petty street gangsterism of the past. His work in the political underworld expanded, which was necessary for the Bolsheviks in the Caucasus, as Stalin was the most effective organizer and troubleshooter in the area, qualities that would be his ticket all the way to the top. One of the big problems constantly facing the party was money. To help get more of it, Stalin formed a group that went by several names, such as the Technical Group, the Bolshevik Expropriators Club, or simply the Outfit, which I'm going to call them the Outfit because it's convenient and their most well-known name. These guys were a Bolshevik street gang, usually around 10 or so guys, depending on how flush they were and how many might have died in their latest job. The steadiest source of their income were protection rackets on local businessmen, but the most lucrative and memorable were the bank robberies. And yes, I'll be talking about that big, well-known one this episode. Now, this gangsterism wasn't unique to the Bolsheviks. As Russia went to hell in a handbasket in 1905, every anti-regime party had their own outfit, and these guys were in intense competition to rip the government off. If a rival party made a big score, then the Bolsheviks came under pressure to top them so that they could still boast they were the biggest game in town. A lot of the heists came in the form of train or stagecoach robberies, which if you've seen an American Western, they were pretty much that, but in a more temperate environment than a desert or prairie. In one notable instance, the outfit engaged in a two-hour gunfight with Cossacks, guarding a gold train headed to the Shiatora mines with the workers' pay. Some of the loot went towards funding local operations, but most went up north to Lenin, disguised in Georgian wine bottles. Stalin and the outfit themselves benefited personally very little from the heists, as their gains went to their cause. The discipline of the outfit was a strength as other groups struggled to maintain themselves after a major success, which oftentimes resulted in individuals making off with the proceeds for their personal benefit. All the money being sent to Lenin did something, though, that helped Stalin more than what he could have gained from keeping the money. The funds were a consistent, positive link with the higher leadership, and even though Lenin and the others didn't really know a whole lot about him just yet, he was increasingly a name, even if they knew him as that Georgian Koba fellow. His prominence in the Caucasus started paying dividends in December 1905, when he was sent as part of his region's Bolshevik delegation to the RSDLP conference, scheduled first for St. Petersburg, but moved to the leftist bastion in Finland, Tampere, owing to understandable security concerns in the capital. Remember that Tampere was Finland's main industrial center and a very red town until 1918, when Karl Mannerheim and his White Army would put the city to the sword. The conference was unremarkable, mostly concerned with burying the Bolshevik-Menshevik hatchet, which obviously went nowhere. It was most notable for being Stalin's first meeting with Lenin, which itself wasn't anything to write home about. Stalin was a bit disappointed in finally meeting his idol. The man who had written such brilliant articles and essays was not a terribly imposing presence in real life, nor did he naturally command a room once he started talking. But later, Stalin would talk himself into a positive reflection as he considered Lenin's openness and easygoing nature among comrades to be a sign of his humility. 
Their second meeting during the April 1906 Fourth Congress of the RSDLP had a bit more going on. First, it was in Stockholm, the first time Stalin would leave the country, which itself was kind of a rarity during his life. He also met a number of men that would be close to him later, including Clement Voroshilov. It was also during this Congress that the RSDLP voted to ban bank robberies, considering the tactic bad for the organization's PR. Lenin fought to keep the practice going, and even when defeated, met with Stalin to make sure that Comrade Koba would keep the heists going, party vote be damned. That Stalin instantly agreed to circumvent the party's dictates in support of him was something noted by Lenin, who became more aware of the Georgians' uses. Stalin would take a little detour to Berlin on the way home to visit his friend from Tiflis, Alyosha, who I mentioned last episode, who was himself studying abroad, before returning back home to his lover Kato in June 1906. And it wasn't long after his return that he decided to take the big step with her. On July 15th, he was leading a secret meeting that was raided by the cops. While the police didn't make any arrests as they couldn't positively ID anybody, Stalin didn't let that deter him from something bigger later on in the night. On the very early morning of the 16th, Joseph and Kato were married. Because he was a very wanted man, the ceremony was attended by only 10 people and was conducted by a priest that Stalin had known in the seminary. The priest agreed only on the condition they'd do it after midnight. So this turned out to be a 2 a.m. wedding, but the late night ambiance had a certain romanticism to it which, depending on your perspective, may or may not have been enhanced by the presence of several members of the outfit. Those around him marveled at how Kato managed to melt the heart of the otherwise, uh, let's just say, tough-hearted Joseph. It was around her that he showed off his romantic side, and she was beyond smitten with her revolutionary beau. The timing of the marriage was not a coincidence, as the couple had earlier learned that Kato was pregnant, so they actually had a son on the way which, given Stalin's work life, there was a lot of uncertainty about what the future held for the new Mr. and Mrs. Yugoshvili. This was a very real concern, as the situation on the ground had changed greatly by the back half of 1906. The regime had been able to steady itself, and the military in Okhrana were on the march putting down insurrectionary activities. The Mensheviks had disavowed operating in criminal activity, preferring instead to try their hand in the new Duma the Tsar was promising. The main force then came down on the Bolsheviks in Georgia, and before long, Stalin and his ilk were an endangered species, as his homeland became a Menshevik bastion. But still, he was defiant, and even when they called for him and the outfit to back off their activities, he refused them. By that time, he was planning the big one. He had bumped into an old friend from Gori in the seminary named Vojnesensky, who had worked in the Tiflis banking mail office. As part of his position, Vojnesensky had access to the schedules of the cash stagecoaches that were otherwise kept secret. The cash stagecoaches basically being the vault trucks of yesteryear. The man informed Stalin of what he knew, understanding full well who he was, because he had also been impressed by Stalin while in school and also had been a fan of his poetry. Kind of flimsy reasoning, and I assume something else might have been going on there, like maybe a little bit of money being thrown his way, but that's his story. Stalin also had the help of a bank clerk named Grigory Kazradzja, who just so happened to be from Gori and a cousin of his mom Kiki's to boot. While that plot stirred, Kato suffered the consequences of her husband's work. 
A Bolshevik was arrested in Moscow, and among his effects was a note with the address for Kato's home. An informant was sent to pose as a friend for a couple weeks and check the place out. While Stalin was out of town, Kato and her sisters hosted the man, and soon after his departure, the police arrived and took her in, already four months pregnant. Stalin rushed back to Tiflis distraught, but there was little for him to do. Showing some sympathy to the pregnant woman, the police allowed her out of jail for two hours each night, where she was taken to the apartment Stalin was staying at. This went on for a solid two months before she was finally released. It was soon after, on March 18, 1907, that she delivered their son, Yakov. Both parents were overjoyed, and Stalin was proud that, despite his work, that he might be something his father was not, a successful family man. In no uncertain terms, that would not come to pass, and his family life was going to be nothing but unpleasant. But it was in the spring of 1907 still, and that big heist was starting to come together, and he was trying to stay positive. While Stalin had alerted Lenin and the other Bolshevik leaders about this heist, which they were very enthusiastic about, it mostly fell to him and an Armenian comrade named Simon Terpetrosian, or Gamo by another name, to plan the job. Gamo had been the point man in many of the outfit's previous jobs. While the final details were being worked out, Stalin actually left the country in April 1907 to attend the RSDLP Party Congress being held in London, but took a detour in Berlin to meet with Lenin. There, the two met in secret to hash out the details of the robbery, with Stalin excitedly telling Lenin they were looking at a million rubles, which would fund the Bolsheviks for years to come. To avoid the appearance of them colluding, they then traveled to London separately. Once the heist was done, it would be preferable not to have too long a trail of contact between them prior to it. The Congress held in London must have been different for the Georgian who had already been to capitals like St. Petersburg, Stockholm, and Berlin. It was a sprawling city even in those days, and on account of not having any money, Stalin and many of his comrades were forced to stay in rough-and-tumble, working-class neighborhoods. Not that it mattered. Regardless of the venue, the Marxists were not ones for sightseeing. The Congress, again, was an occasion for the two factions of the party to snipe at each other, and this was the first time Stalin saw Trotsky speak, although they were not formally introduced. Stalin didn't think much of the grandstanding Menshevik, to say the least. And while Lenin secured the Bolsheviks a majority of leadership spots in the party, the Mensheviks succeeded in pushing for investigations into banditry, which caused Stalin to keep a very, very low profile in the Congress. The core problem the party was facing went unaddressed, though, that in the aftermath of the 1905 revolution's end, the RSDLP was under siege and their resources were dwindling. The bank heist, however unsanctioned, would be the solution. Stalin got back to Tiflis in early June 1907, right before everything was set to go down. Camo had almost blown his face off while making a bomb back in May, but had recovered in time to take part. On June 13th, at 10 a.m., the fun got underway. It was not a terribly intricate plan. Gamo had accomplices rig up bombs across the city, which went off simultaneously. The money to be stolen was being carried via a stagecoach carrying two guards and two bank employees, followed by an open wagon filled with soldiers and surrounded by Cossacks. Camo and the outfit rode in on a wagon of their own, while the small bank convoy was assailed from all directions by grenades and bombs. 
It was a chaotic and grisly sight, and the entire city fell into chaos. Uh, the stagecoach carrying the money actually almost slipped through the fingers of the Bolsheviks as a horse harnessed to it decided to bolt, but a well-placed grenade blew off the animal's legs. Further waves of bombs went off across the city, and the panic just got worse. Camo and the gang made off with over 300,000 rubles, and the streets were flooded with cops and Cossacks, desperate to retrieve the money. While the amount they could deliver back to Lenin amounted to only a little under $3.5 in today's dollars, that would keep the Bolsheviks afloat for some time to come. But as you might imagine, it brought an ungodly amount of heat. Stalin's active role in the heist is disputed, and some claim that he was present, but it was most likely his role was just planning and getting the inside contacts. Stalin was forced to flee with Kato and the baby Yakov for Baku, while Kamo laid low for a short time before delivering the money to Lenin in Finland. This, in turn, forced Lenin to flee to Switzerland, as the authorities were very quickly after him, too. This was a huge boost to Stalin's profile, as the story went international, because, you know, it was just bombs all across an entire city. That's just crazy. But, oh boy, was it going to hurt the party in the near term. Only about half the money was able to be cashed, as owing to much of it being traceable, and even then it had to be laundered. Lenin also had a falling out with some comrades who themselves made off with some of the money as well. The windfall that he managed to hang on to didn't last as long as he had hoped, and Lenin was back to scrounging for cash before long. Gamo, for his part, traveled to Berlin and proposed going double or nothing. He started planning yet another heist, this one, by his estimation, sure to cause 200 collateral deaths in its undertaking. Gamo, you see, was kind of a bomb fiend, and obviously a psychopath. But he was betrayed, and German police got a hold of him on October 27, 1907. The problem was, the German cops weren't sure who he was, as he was only going by the name Mirsky at the time. Keep in mind, photograph pictures and fingerprint records weren't readily available in those days. Not even the Akrana were sure who he was, and it was only on March 1st, 1908, that he was positively identified by a Bolshevik traitor from back in Georgia that had been recently picked up. Gamma was set for extradition, but a comrade advised him to plead insanity, which even back then would prevent him from being shipped off to what was definitely a death sentence. Gamma spent two years shouting, crying, raving, fighting, refusing to eat, pulling his hair out, doing suicide attempts, and even pretended to be Napoleon. Eventually, the Germans got fed up with him and sent him back to Russia anyway, where during his trial, he kept the bit going, talking to a bird he had smuggled in. Instead of being executed, he was committed to an asylum in Tiflis, where after three years, he escaped and made his way out of the country. I won't be checking in on him again, but long story short, he tried another big robbery in Russia, got caught, was imprisoned, sentenced to death, but had it commuted, and he was released after the February Revolution. He found work in the customs offices of the Bolshevik government and died after being hit by a truck in 1922. But I digress. Back to Stalin. While he fled to Baku successfully, the heist left him in the deep end. The Mensheviks were pissed that Lenin had obviously defied the party mandate of no more robberies. They set up committees to investigate who was responsible, hoping that in the process of ruining Stalin, they would also ruin Lenin. 
When questioned, the two inside men for the job immediately sold Stalin out. While Lenin defended Comrade Koba before the Central Committee of the RSDLP, the local caucus's leadership, dominated by Mensheviks like Jordania, who despised Stalin, expelled him from the party. This expulsion was disputed from the start, as it was a case of Mensheviks trying to expel a Bolshevik, which, despite the two factions cohabitating in the party, it was kind of unspoken that neither would go after the other like that. But Lenin made it through the affair without getting into trouble, and he backed Stalin up, once again seeing that in the Georgian there was somebody in the gang of nerds that composed the RSDLP that could actually get something done. The time after the heist, though, were obscure ones for Stalin and his family. They settled just outside Baku on a seaside shanty next to the Caspian Sea. Stalin saw the change as an opportunity, as the oil town had become a vital component of the Tsarist Empire, and at the same time a center of socialist activity on account of the inhuman conditions found in the oil fields. The famous Nobel family, who made their name in explosives and peace prizes, solidified their fortunes by getting in on the ground floor of the ocean of oil under Baku. In 1901, half the world's oil came from there. The city was surrounded by the gilded palaces of the oil barons who got in on the vast fields. People came from all over the region to get jobs working the derricks, creating a multi-ethnic melting pot. The workers, of course, didn't share the prosperity, much like in Batumi at the other end of the pipeline leaving Baku. The streets were polluted, the air was toxic, oil would bubble up in the waters of the Caspian and ignite. Poison was everywhere, and I don't mean that as a metaphor. Literal poison from the petroleum was everywhere. It was here that Stalin meant to start again as the strongman of the Bolsheviks in the Caucasus. For Kato, though, it was a much different experience. She had no real friends, was far from home, and did not take to the foul air of the oil city. While Joseph took up editing the local Bolshevik newspapers and going out, making speeches, and getting people used to reporting to him, she sat alone with Yakov, sweating in heat she was unused to. But even when her sister suggested she come back home for a spell, she refused to leave her husband's side. But the environment was killing her, and even Joseph saw that his wife, which he himself was neglecting so badly, needed to go back home. Unfortunately, it was too late for young Kato. She had not been getting enough to eat, and the environment of Baku had further exhausted her. She did eventually go back to Tiflis, but her health was already ruined. She caught typhus and started hemorrhaging blood. Stalin rushed back to Tiflis and stayed at her side, but her fate was sealed. She died on November 22, 1907, just 22 years old. Joseph was at her bedside to watch her pass away. And her death shattered Stalin. For the relative short time they had together, she had been kind of a rock for him, a constant that he had taken for granted. He sunk into a despair so deep that his comrades took away his pistol for fear of what he'd do with it. At her funeral, a friend reported that Stalin told him, This creature softened my heart of stone. She died, and with her died my last warm feelings for humanity. Stalin then placed a hand over his heart. It's all so desolate here. So indescribably desolate. Stalin, even that early on, was noted for being a cold man. But when his wife's coffin was lowered into her grave, he threw himself in with it. He had to be dragged out by the attendees. 
his hysterics were only cut short by the appearance of Akrana agents at the cemetery. At his wife's own funeral, he had to make a break for it and leapt over the fence line, managing to evade the authorities, but being denied even a brief reprieve of the struggle that his life was dominated by. A struggle that he gave himself over to completely at the expense of his own humanity. He left his son Yakov in Tiflis with Kato's family. He would not see his son for the next decade, on account of him being both a cold-hearted negligent and because he didn't want any reminders of Kato. He went back home and hid out at his mom's place, where he at least had someone to sympathize with. Despite many in-law cliches, Kato and Kiki had got along pretty well. Stalin returned to Baku and at the start of 1908 began re-establishing all his old operations. A new outfit was formed, and he started agitating among the oil workers. Notable was that he befriended the Aziri Muslims, who proved to be invaluable additions to the Bolshevik cause. It also connected him to figures south of the border, and he busied himself with running guns to Persian revolutionaries. His activities were out of step with the rest of the socialists, as by that time most were keeping a low profile on account of the autocracy's triumph since its dark days in 1905. And while the outfit's criminal activities hummed along as they had before in Georgia, they had a new problem in the Black 100s. This proto-fascist reactionary force had emerged post-1905 and presented an overtly hostile threat on the streets aside from the normal cops and soldiers. The two groups targeted each other, so in addition to robberies, protection and extortion rackets, and counterfeit operations, the Bolsheviks also had to hunt out rivals. The Bolsheviks, though, had the upper hand and the connections with the regular underworld. Because Stalin didn't bother with scruples, he was perfectly content working with common criminal gangs. Which was good, because Baku was a lawless hellhole where lower-class areas were run by such groups. It also helped that the oil barons came to their own understandings with Stalin, preferring to send him payments instead of him sabotaging their refineries. Which sounds insane. These were the Nobels and the Rothschilds, some of those powerful names on earth that nobody messed with. But Stalin did, and for a little bit he got away with it. That being said, some of his jobs were attracting attention again. He was involved in the robbery of a money ship on the Caspian, as well as a raid on the Baku arsenal. The authorities didn't waste time, and by March 25, 1908, just barely three months after returning to Baku after Kato's death, Stalin got caught in a series of mass sweeps conducted by the police and Akrana. He was tossed into the Belov prison in Baku, where he immediately made himself the boss of the political prisoners. If he caught wind that any of them were informing to the police, he had them killed. And since the politicals were usually singled out by the normal criminals on account of being a bunch of nerds, Stalin organized some pipe-hitting Georgians to act as their protection, a tactic he would repeat when filling out the rank and file of his own later enforcers. He was eventually sentenced to two years' exile in the Vologda province, whose southern borders were only 200 miles from Moscow. Once again, the indifferent czarist regime had assigned him an almost random punishment given his heavy crimes against the state, and by February 1909, he was in exile again. Now, just because he was still in Europe didn't mean he had an easy go of it. Even on the western side of the Urals, northern Russia was no picnic. He was again caught out in the winter, and this time, the party didn't have much to send his way. The authorities had smashed the Bolsheviks in the Caucasus, and without Stalin, the outfit and the rest of the party withered away there. 
This time he was assigned to a far larger community of exiles, totaling 450 in total, all killing time in the woods of northern Russia. Once again, there wasn't a whole heck of a lot to do but debate, drink, read, and chase women. And while Kato's death hadn't put him off that last one, he didn't do so well with emotional connections. He would turn on that deceptive Stalin charm to get a woman interested, but as they got to know each other over time, his girlfriends would run up against that emotional wall of ice. It didn't help that he was entering a period of probable depression, either. The exile was hard on him. The party was in ruins, and at 31 years old, he had next to nothing to show for it. The party, which had grown to 150,000 members after 1905, was down to 10,000 by 1910. Although he would deny it later, Lenin's squabbles with the other foreign exiles in the comparatively comfy cities of Europe seemed asinine to him when the great cause was threatened with unraveling completely back at home. He even came to believe, if only for a short while, that reconciliation with the Mensheviks was necessary in order for both factions to survive long term. Stalin's morale was rock bottom, but he wasn't one for giving up either. The sheer number of exiles the regime was creating was overwhelming its ability to keep them all corralled. In June 1909, Stalin secured some pocket money from his fellow exiles, and after donning a dress, was escorted by a friend aboard a steamship before being dropped off onto a train bound for St. Petersburg. Yes, a half-assed drag get-up and a bit of bribe money got him past the Tsar's security apparatus. Even in those dark days, there was still hope. He posed as an Armenian merchant upon reaching St. Petersburg, but while he did network with friends a bit, he was quickly headed back down south to Baku. His short stay was just as well. He was almost immediately informed on by a couple of traders in the Bolshevik ranks. He was back south by July 1909, and yet again set to re-establish himself. This time, though, he demanded the RSDLP's Central Committee, then based in Paris, to establish a Russian bureau to manage affairs from within the empire, and not outside it on the other side of Europe. The committee said, yeah, sure, and put him in charge of it. The promotion was mostly on paper, since Stalin's sphere of influence was barely the city of Baku. But then again, on paper, he was kind of in charge of the whole party within the Russian empire. He didn't have much time to savor the promotion, though. The police knew he was back, and all through the rest of 1909, he was bouncing from one safe house to another. The party was thoroughly compromised with police informers, and he unleashed the first, but certainly not the last, of his maniacal purges, desperately casting about for traitors in his midst. Plenty of innocents got caught up in the mayhem, and the Akrona patted themselves on their collective backs for inspiring such a panic in their enemies. It got so bad that members of the RSDLP began to question whether Stalin was not compromised himself, given how self-destructive he was acting. The fact that Stalin always kept contacts within the police and the Okhrana was a matter of some debate and ambiguity. He could reasonably claim that they were sympathizers helping the cause and helping him and other comrades out of jail, but the mere presence of those authorities being close to him understandably aroused concerns that the relationship went both ways. There wasn't any proof, of course, but in the conspiratorial underworld of revolutionary politics, one would be naive not to conjecture. Stalin himself certainly thought most all of his fellows were possible traitors. And those contacts Stalin cultivated undoubtedly were in many cases playing their own game. That was just kind of part and parcel for that kind of life. 
and his contacts didn't save him every time, as I've already described. And it wouldn't save him in the future either, as on March 23, 1910, he was picked up once again. He was arrested with who had become his long-term girlfriend, Stefania Petrovskia, who had looked past his emotional barrenness and been in a relationship with him since his last exile, even moving down to Baku to be with him. When it became clear he was going to be returned to exile to finish out his sentence, he requested he be able to marry her. This request, coming after going back and forth several times with the cops, whether he was actually in a relationship with her or if he even knew her. However, a little whoopsie occurred, and while permission for him to marry was granted on September 23, 1910, that was the same day he was shipped out back to exile. So they never connected, and he never saw her again. This fresh exile, coming so soon after the last one, represented a new low point for Stalin, as he questioned if he and his comrades could ever get the movement off the ground. It was a question that would take years to be answered. And next week, we'll cover those wilderness years of near-constant exile and disappointment that would all be turned around by the Tsarist regime's self-destruction. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.